1 Peter chapter 3, beginning the reading of God's Word in verse 8. That's all here, the Lord's Word. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing. Knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And God will add his blessing to that reading from his word for his name's sake. Please bow with me just for a moment. Ask the Lord to open up the way in your heart and mind for his word. Father in heaven, we do come asking thee to sanctify this hour of the preaching and hearing of thy word. Fill thy servant with the Holy Spirit. Grant him liberty of heart and mind. And give, Lord, the hearing ear. Take away the tiredness of the mind and body, if it be there. Remind us, Lord, what we're really about this morning. We're here in thy presence to hear what thou hast to say to us. Enable us to behave accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. There's a statement that, that Peter makes in this section that seems to sum up, to me at least, what this passage that I read is all about. It's found in the first half of verse 10. For he that will love life and see good days. For he that will love life and see good days. You can only conclude from that statement that it's a good thing. It's a good thing to love life. The clear implication is that there is nothing wrong but everything right with wanting to live. Nothing wrong with wanting to live a long life. In fact, that's exactly what the psalmist, whom Peter is quoting, says about this. David raises this question in Psalm 34, verse 12, What man is he that desireth life and loveth many days? But neither David nor Peter are merely talking about living a long life, loving to live to be old. It's not just any old life that we should love. Jesus Christ, remember, taught that there is a love of life which will only lead to the loss of life. John twelve twenty five. he that loveth his life. Now, Peter said, if you love life, which is good, Christ said, he that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it, the life eternal. But Peter and, and David the psalmist connect the kind of life we should love 
here's the key, with seeing good days. That's the kind of life to love. David asked, What man is he that desireth life, and loveth many days, that he may see good? In order that he may see good? Peter says, He that will love life and see good days. That's what he's commending. Loving life in order to see, wanting to live long, to see good days. The world has its own interpretation of what it means to see good days. To them, the good life is about finding happiness in whatever the world describes as happiness, wealth, or possessions, or position. Some find it's in getting more power over others. Some think it's in good looks, it's having a nice car, it's being popular with people, etc., etc., etc. The world will never, but should, it will never take a serious look at what Solomon had to say about all of that. Remember, Solomon was a man who, by any measure, he had it all. He had it all. He built houses, planted vineyards, made gardens and orchards, pools of water, got servants and maidens and singers. He gathered silver and gold in abundance. In fact, he writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy. He writes, So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. So much so that when the queen of Sheba, who by her own rights was a very wealthy person, when the queen of Sheba visited Solomon and saw all of his wealth, his splendor, she exclaimed, there was no more spirit in her. It took her breath away. It must have been something to behold to say it left me breathless. But what did Solomon say about all this in that same chapter? All that the world would call the good life. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 2 verse 17, I hated life. All is vanity and vexation of spirit. I had the good life. I had all that life could bring. I had all the joys that could be known. I hated life and saw that it was all vexation and vanity of spirit. Solomon, the wisest man. So that's not what Peter means when he speaks of seeing good days. To see good days is, again, to take David in Psalm 27, to see good days in life is to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That's what a good life is about, seeing the goodness of the Lord. And seeing the goodness of the Lord, even as the context of that text gives us, even in the midst of trouble. Seeing good days is another way of knowing the blessedness of walking 
with God. That Old Testament term, blessed, or blessed is in the plural. Oh, the happiness as it could be read literally. It describes a life that knows and experience something of the Lord's peace, something of heart contentment, ease, heart ease. It knows something of real joy. It knows something of spiritual powers, something about God's presence being a reality. Seeing the goodness of the Lord is to see the Lord's provision. It's to experience his ongoing mercy. It's to relish and experience his ongoing pardon for sin. Those are good days. That's seeing the goodness of the Lord. The world's not interested in those things at all. doesn't care about those things. Because they define happiness in other terms. The only thing that interests me is how God defines real happiness. What is it to have a good life? A good life. It doesn't mean that God's people never see days of adversity, days of calamity. They have bad days. But even the bad days are viewed by those who have known the goodness of the Lord Even the bad days are understood to be working together for good. Even the bad ones. It's what they say about how David and Peter, what they say about how to see the good days that this passage I read this morning is really all about. David and Peter are saying that if you want to enjoy a long life of good days, then this is what you must do. It's what comes before and after this part about loving life and seeing the good days that's so part and partial to how God's people are going to experience the good life. We're not surprised that Peter says that there are things that Christians need to do and need to be for that to happen. He's been doing that, as a matter of fact, since verse 11 of chapter 2, has he not? He, he, he let them know, both barrels, their privileges, what grace had been shown to them, how special they were. But there in verse 11 of chapter 2, he began to show them how they are to conduct themselves as the people of God In this world, he has dealt with how Christians are to conduct themselves with regards to society, that is, civil government, rulers, authorities, and employment, you know, the slave-master relationship. He went on to deal with how they are to conduct themselves, to act as the people of God in the home, as he spoke, we saw for four weeks, on the wife and on the husband. And now he turns his attention to how they are to conduct themselves in the church. Society. In the home. And the church. 
from these verses, I want to commence uh, a series of messages on how to live, how to live a long, good life, how to live a long, good life. First, uh, it's the only thing we'll deal with. We're just going to take our time working our way through it. There's so much going on here that we don't want to miss what the Lord have to say to us, how we are as a church, as people in this church, going to enjoy the good life. We love life. And we want to see good days. And here's what we, here's how we need to conduct ourselves. First, always seek for harmony in the church. Always seek for harmony in the church. Verse 8, finally, in summary, he says, I'm going to conclude all this now before I move on. Finally, be ye all of one mind. The particular Greek word he uses that only occurs here. There's other similar expressions, but this particular word, it's only used here in the New Testament. It's a compound word that means, uh, well, you would know the word uh, homo, homo sapien, homosexual, same. The word homo, hamas, means same. The other word is the Greek word phrene, phrenology. You know phrenology, the study of the mind. That's the two words put together, same mind. And the Holy Spirit speaks in the New Testament of Christians being of the same mind. He means that they enjoy a unity of aim, a unity of purpose, what we're about, why we're here, what we're doing, where we're going. There's unity there on the same page. There's also a unity of affection. There's a, a same kind of love that's shared among them. And that's because there is a unity of spirit, and I mean the Holy Spirit here, not little S, uppercase S. A, a unity that is created by the Holy Ghost, because they're joined to Christ. And there's a, a unity that is in the spirit that they have. And you, 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 you don't make that. It's, it's done something that God does. It's automatic when you're regenerated, when you're born again. You're brought into the kingdom. You're brought into Christ, into union with him. And that means you're brought into union with all the other members of the body. So there is a unity of spirit. Since we're talking about the good life, real happiness, blessedness, we must never lose sight of what Jesus said in that passage we call the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed, let's put in the word happy, because that's what it means, happy. Happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. There's no greater peacemaker than God himself. 
no greater peacemaker than God himself. And if we are the children of God, then the attribute of being a peacemaker is going to be reflected in the lives of his children. That's what Jesus Christ was getting at. You know, your children look like you. Their father, they look like you. There's going to be reflections, resemblances, and so it will be happy are the peacemakers, for they are the children of God. What better thing could there be in life than to be a child of God? To know you're a child of God. To know you're in the family. Now the scripture says it's the peacemakers that know that. Because they're like God. It's striking to me that when the Holy Spirit moved Peter to deal with this matter of how Christians are to conduct themselves in the church, he begins, he begins with this appeal for harmony through unity. Harmony through unity. I mean, we could go down the road of harmony in the home and harmony in the marriage and harmony in the family, take the same principles because they all apply. But we're dealing with harmony. He's dealing with harmony amongst the saints in the church. He begins with Harmony. He does not begin with having compassion on one another. Not with loving his brethren. Not with an appeal to be pitiful or to be courteous. He doesn't begin there. No, the Holy Spirit begins with be all of one mind. And why does he make this appeal? to these Christians. First, one of the most destructive forces to any church is the disunity and division that occurs because there's a lack of same-mindedness. There's a lack of same-mindedness and it always is destructive to the life of the church. Peter is writing, allow me to remind you, to relatively new Christians. These aren't the old seasoned saints that have been around for a long time, that have had all kinds of time to grow and mature. He calls them in chapter 2, remember, newborn babes. But these newborn babes were showing great maturity when it came to their fiery trials. They were in sorrow, he says, in heaviness, through, all, through manifold temptations, through all kinds of trials, yet they were rejoicing greatly in their salvation. I tell you what, that's, that's, uh, that's nothing to, to snuff at. When you're in the midst of heaviness, sorrow, through awful trials, and yet, in the midst of that, to be able to rejoice greatly, he says, in their salvation, that shows some maturity. They weren't all down in the mouth and all discouraged and defeated, woe is me. No, they were still rejoicing in their great salvation. So much so, he says, even with joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's the kind of rejoicing they were engaging in. 
indescribable joy that was full of glory. It was just shining. New Christians. Peter also points out that they had unfeigned love for the brethren. It was genuine. It was as real as it gets. They had genuine love for each other. He goes on to say that they were a chosen generation. They were a holy nation. A peculiar treasure of God. And yet they still needed to hear that command from the Holy Spirit. Be ye all of one mind. Peter knew something. Rather, the Holy Ghost knew something. I'm sure Peter knew it because the Holy Ghost would have taught him. There is one sin above all others that plagues the best of Christians. It's the sin of pride. Pride. It was that which brought Lucifer down from being the prince of the angels in heaven to the prince of the angels in hell. Pride. I've often quoted my friend Spurgeon who was fond of saying that pride is the last sin that dies in the child of God because it doesn't die until he dies. It will be with us till the day that we die. Pride. And there's no greater enemy to unity and to harmony in any church than pride because pride is the greatest enemy to being of one mind. Pride is all about self. Pride will delude, delude a believer into thinking that his or her opinion is the only one that's correct and therefore it's the only one that matters. You can easily see why that would cause a breach in the fellowship of the Lord's people, why it would be so uh, unproductive of oneness of mind. When one individual says, I'm the only one that's thinking clearly about this, I've got the mind of God on this, and you all just need to agree with me. Where there is unity of mind, there is unity of love. And unity of affection, which would avoid hurting, grieving fellow believers through such a carnal ego, where there is unity, it will be avoided. Immediately after the Apostle Paul told the Philippian church to be of one mind, that's the same idea of Peter. Immediately afterward, he said, let nothing be done through strife and vainglory. Be of one mind, same-mindedness, have the same aim and purpose and love. 
let nothing be done through strife and vainglory. That, that was a comment on what not being of one mind would look like. Not being of one mind looks like strife and vainglory. That word translated strife does not mean contention. There is a Greek word translated strife in the authorized version that does mean contention, uh, but that's not what this word here actually means. It speaks of an attempt to maneuver for position, to strive for position, to put oneself forward. Self-ambition, that's the idea in the word. The term vainglory speaks of empty boasting or conceitedness. Where there is a lack of harmony in a church, there you will find a lack of unity of mind, a lack of purpose, because pride has its own mind, and anyone else's mind doesn't matter. You know what that's like, surely, in the marriage, right? If you've been married for any length of time, you know how if one has one, it's, we're not on the same mind, we're not on the same page, it brings disunity. It causes division, hurt feelings. Because the thinking is, I'm right and you're wrong. And there is no attempt to get on the same page. Happens in the church. Paul again speaks of this in 1 Timothy 3. Uh, there he's giving a list of qualifications for those who are going to hold the office of elder. And he says, Timothy, don't put in office anyone, a, a novice, someone who's been just been born again, new Christian, a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. He says there's a danger there because he's so new. There's not been the advancement of humility in his life that comes with maturity. And he's going to tend to have a higher opinion of himself than he should have. That phrase, being lifted up with pride, is just one word in the Greek. It comes from a word that means to be wrapped up in smoke or to be wrapped up in clouds. In other words, if such a man, as a relatively new believer, was given such a high office, Paul says that he would be wrapped up in the clouds of pride. He's way up here, and everybody else is down there being looked down upon. That's the idea. He would have a higher opinion of himself than he should. He would be puffed up with his own importance and with the office. To put it another way, such a believer would think that his opinion is the only one worth considering. That his position is the only right one that the way he sees things should be the way that everybody else ought to see things. That's pride. As you'll understand, that attitude always is going to disrupt the harmony the close-knitness of the church because there is this, this lack of same-mindedness. Unity is, is to have the same mind and heart and purpose, but pride insists on having its own mind, its own purpose, its own heart, desires. So Peter is, is not saying that... 
You can't have differing opinions. That's not what he's saying. You can't have, and we're going to have differing opinions on any number of things. He's not calling for an end to diversity and the institution in the church of absolute uniformity. The church needs diversity in order to function properly. Need different ideas, different thoughts, different insights, different ways of approaching the same thing. There's no better proof of, of that than in our body. There's a great deal of diversity in the members of our body. My arms don't look like my legs and my feet don't look like my hands and so on and so forth. But all of them act in harmony because there is there's a unity among them. They, 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 they act together. And they need to act together because if my left leg wants to go in one direction and my right wants to go in the other, I've got problems. If my left hand wants to grab hold of something that needs both hands and my other hand can say, I'm going to stay behind the back, I've got problems. There's something sick. There's something wrong in my body if that happens. Once they both grab a need and both are now working in harmony. So they're diverse, yet they work together. That's the picture of of any church for that matter. It's the one mind, you see. The reason they're acting in harmony is because there's one mind directing all the members. All the members are connected to this one body and it's the one mind that controls the members of the body. And so they act in harmony because there's one mind there and that's how it works in church life. Having the mind of the Lord, the mind of the Spirit, the mind of Christ that we behave as we should. How in the world are we going to love life and see good days as the people of God if we are not of the same mind? How are we going to do that? How do you feel when you are engulfed in constant strife and discord or disunity of purpose and this unity of affection. You ever been in a job where that's the case, where there's, there's no harmony in the staff, there's no harmony among the people you're working for? I mean, do you say, I love my job. Well, I just can't wait to get up. I just love it. No, I tell you what, you hate the job. It's constant friction. It's constant discord. When you, when you have to deal continually with the strife and the conflict, you don't say, I love life. You say, I hate it. I, I hate life. This is not living the good life. This is not seeing good days. That's what the Holy Ghost is getting at here. If you want to see, if you want to love life and see good days, you'll be of the same mind. Unity among the saints is the very object of God's entire redemptive purpose. Do you know that? Christ died to bring about unity. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10, Paul states that the redemption accomplished by the death of Christ was for the very purpose of reuniting God's people. 
that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he, that is Christ, might, or God, might gather together in one. There you are. That he might gather together in one all things in Christ. You see, sin brought this disunity. Sin brought this division between God Yes, God and men, but also because of between God and men, it's between men and men. The reason there is so much disunity is because there's disunity with God. The reason there is a, uh, there's no harmony on the horizontal level is because there's no harmony on the vertical level. But Christ died to change all of that and to bring those who were divided into one. Isn't that exactly what he says in Ephesians 2 regarding Jews and Gentiles? They were separate, but Christ died. He tore down that wall of petition, and now they are one in Christ, right? One building, one body, one church. It's all about unity. I mean, the whole point of redemption was unity. You see, really, when you come to think about it, There is a direct correlation between our unity with the Lord and our unity amongst each other. Right? That's that's the source of our unity among ourselves. There's nothing I can do that will ever disunite me from Christ. Once I'm in Christ, I'm in Him forever. Once I'm united to Jesus Christ, I am in Him forever. And there is nothing that I can ever do that would disunite me from the body of Christ. Now, I might get excommunicated, granted. But if I am truly a believer, I am not only in Christ, I'm in Christ's body. And there is nothing that can break that unity that I have with the body. But oh, my friends, I can sure do a whole lot of damage to the experience and the enjoyment of that unity. What are we here for? What are we here for? Surely that truth right there would lead us to greater earnestness in this this pursuit of harmony, of being a peacemaker and not a peacebreaker. It doesn't take much to break peace, sad to say. It can be just a look, just a word, just an attitude. And it's caustic to the same mindedness that belongs to exist among the Lord's people. Brothers and sisters, we're not talking about just being able to get along with people. (laughs) There are a lot of folks that are dead lost and they're just so easy to get along with. You've met them. They don't have the Holy Ghost. They're as lost as a donkey's leg. But they're just easy to get along with. This is not talking about something that's just natural personality. 
This is a unity that's created by the Holy Spirit. It is a spiritual unity. It is a spiritual harmony. It's about grace in the life. That's far different than being easygoing. Pride is destructive. So be of the same mind, he says. The second thought I have from this is humility is the secret to harmony. If pride is the great source of division and the, 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 the harm to harmony, humility surely must be the secret to harmony. Humility is one of the greatest friends to harmony among the Lord's people. And it is one of the greatest helpers to like-mindedness. When we come to chapter 5, whenever that takes place, if I was a, a typical fundamental Baptist, I'd be sick until the rapture, we ever get there. But there's not going to be that, but that's another story altogether. When we come to chapter 5, we'll find Peter telling these same believers, be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Clothed with humility. Humility, the word means having a humble opinion of oneself, a deep sense of, of one's littleness. Lowliness of mind is in that word humility. A humble opinion of yourself. A sense of how little you are, not how great you are, but how little you are. This is so foreign to the world. It's so foreign. That word humble he used, giveth grace to the humble, it means uh, low to the ground, lowly in spirit. Jesus Christ said, I am meek and lowly. There's our word, lowly of heart. The word proud he uses, God resisted the proud. That word means haughty, superior attitude, arrogant. You can see why humility actually beats at the heart of harmony, just as pride beats at the heart of discord and division and gets in the way of us loving life and seeing good days, blessed days, happy days. Humility, in the first place, results from a proper estimation of yourself and of others. Pride results in our having a wrong estimation of ourselves and others. Pride is that source of why we puff up ourselves and why we put down other people. Humility is just the opposite. 
After Paul told the Philippians to be of one mind and let nothing be done through strife and vainglory, remember, he wrote, in lowliness of mind, that word lowliness of mind, it's the same word that Peter uses in chapter 5, clothed with humility. So we could plug the word humility. In humility, let each esteem other better than themselves. I've had Christians tell me they have a hard time with that one. How do you do that? To actually look upon other believers and think they're better than you are. I mean, I've been told it's not being honest. Because I am better than they are in various ways. That word better means that. It means to be above. To be superior. To surpass. So if you, if you view yourself as superior, as above others, then you can rest assured it's going to disrupt the harmony of the church. And you're not going to love life. And see good days. You'll not be living the good life. God's people will sense that attitude of superiority. And it will be a real hindrance to fellowship. Contrarywise, if they sense there is a spirit of humility that they know that you're one of them. You're not above them. Indeed, that you feel in many ways that you're less than them. What a difference that makes when it comes to living and, and working together in harmony. Oh, you, you may well be better than I am when it comes to physical strength. I have no doubt in my mind that when I reach Ernie Holt's age, I will not be better than he is right now. He probably in many ways is better health than I'm in, and I'm a good bit younger than he is. But that's not what it's about. You may be physically stronger than your brothers and sisters. You may have more money in the bank. You may be more intelligent. You might be more highly educated than they are. But true humility doesn't look at any of those things when it comes to assessing a man's worth. Nothing. The child of God who has learned... And it must be learned. It's an ongoing learning process. True humility has learned about who he really is and who he really is often leads him to cry out with Paul, Oh, wretched man that I am. He goes and he looks in the mirror and while others may have this high impression, he sees what he really is. 
it led Paul to honestly describe himself as the chief of sinners. He said, I am the least of the apostles. Matter of fact, I am not meat. I'm not fit to be called an apostle. That's how he viewed himself. He wasn't exaggerating the truth. He wasn't speaking evangelically, you know. Sort of stretch it a bit. He viewed himself as being, he says, less than the least of all saints. You know what I know about Paul? If ever there was a man who influenced people and could win friends, it was the Apostle Paul. He was a genius by any measure. He had gifts abounding. But Paul knew that I'm less than least of all the saints. That's the secret of harmony in the church, so crucial to loving life and seeing good days. The second thing I want to say about this humility is the way to see our humility grow and thus to see our harmony grow is to remember that we are what we are by the grace of God. There's an admission that we need to see humility grow. If it is indeed true, and it is, that pride will be with us till the day we die, there's always going to be the ongoing need for humility of spirit, lowliness of mind to grow and to develop within us. To deal with the arrogance, the haughtiness, the ego, the self-importance, the self-ambition, the maneuvering to get your way, to have your way, all of that, there's always a need for us to grow in humility. It's a very humbling fact. Grace, you see, has no place for pride, which lies at the foundation of division and the destruction of this same-mindedness. As I said, Paul was... He was highly gifted. But he knew that whatever he was and whatever gifts he had, it was all by the grace of God. He knew that. He was convinced of that. I am what I am by the grace of God. That's what he wrote. So grace will take the rug out. Grace will take the rug out from boasting. It will... It will be destructive to this feeling of superiority. I am better than you. I'm stronger than you. I'm better looking than you. I'm smarter than you. Whatever the better than qualities you want to go to that bring about this harmony. There's 
Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, something. We, we are not in competition here. Church life is not competition. We're not trying to be better the other one. That is the exact opposite of same-mindedness. And so, that being true, I'm not the, we're not trying to compete. I'm not trying to get one over to be one to up you one. This is not about one-upmanship. You, you ever seen people get engaged in one-upmanship? Oh, I, uh, I took a flight to Canada. Oh, yeah, I went to Rome. I, I've got a nice Cadillac in my garage. Oh, I got a Lexus. I got a Mercedes, an Audi. One-upmanship has no place in the work of God. Whatever we have, by way of gifts, they're gifts. Whatever we are, we are by the grace of God. If you're better looking, the Lord bless you. I'm glad for you. Nothing wrong with beauty. But you're that way because God made you that way. And if you're not in that category of that would win a beauty contest, guess what? The Lord made you that way. If you're stronger, that was the Lord's doing. If you've got certain skill sets that you're really good at, you're really talented, guess where talents came from? You smart? Where in the world do you think the IQ came from? It certainly does pop a balloon in anybody's pride. The way to see humility grow and thus harmony to grow is to see that we are what we are by the grace of God. Grace always is found beating at the heart of harmony and humility. It's all of grace, every last bit of it. There won't be any snobs in heaven. No upper crust. No stuck-up noses. Be a lot of them in hell, but not in heaven. The secret of humility. My last and closing comment is having the mind of Christ. After telling them to have the same mind, Paul said, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Peter has done that back in 
chapter 2 at the end when he talks about them going through all this suffering. Well, don't forget Christ. What the Lord endured. How, 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 is the, how is this humility going to mature and develop in my life so that I become much more a promoter of unity and harmony than a detractor from it? Well, I, I need the mind of Christ. How do I get that? Well, I get it, number one, by looking at him. I look at him as the example. How did Jesus behave? How did he respond to his haters, to those who wanted to destroy him, to his enemies? How did he respond in situations where he was facing rank pride amongst his own disciples? How did he deal with it? The life of Christ is a best place to start looking at how I can have his mind, his, his thinking. Looking at him, I also find it by living on him. Living on him, drawing from him the grace that I am going to need to overcome my selfish, self-centered pride and ego and zip my lip when everything within me says, you are better. And you know more. And you need to put that person down in their place. I've got, to, I've got to be able to zip my lip. And remember, who am I? I'm an old dirty sinner that Jesus has saved and made me a child of God. Anything, any ability, any talent that I have, it's been given to me. But I'll tell you what, that only grows as you live on Christ, as you draw from him, as you abide in him, as you commune with him, as you walk with him. I'm talking about walking humbly with the Lord. That's what the Lord's looking for. He has shown the old man what is good. And what does the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? Walking humbly, that's living on Jesus Christ. The partaking, the participation in. Finally, I get it by leaning on him. Leaning, looking at him, living on him, leaning on him. All of my frailty, my weakness, because of my sin... And I find, how in the world can I overcome my pride? How can I be a promoter, a peacemaker, and, and love life and, and see good days? Lord, I can't, but you can, and I'm going to lean on you to hold me up, to carry me through. That's one element of living the good life. May God give us many days like this.
God, write his word on our hearts for his name's sake. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's seek the Lord. Father in heaven, in the Savior's name, we come looking for help from heaven, not just to be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. We realize, Lord, there is a battle with pride that we all face day in and day out. But we know, Lord, where the victory is found. Grow, Lord, humility within us, like-mindedness with Christ. And we know those things will take care of themselves. Oh, Father, help us to be of the same mind here more and more. In our Savior's precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.